0: Let's stand for the reading of God's Word, turn to John chapter 21 at verse 18, and we'll read to the end of the Gospel. This is the Word of the Lord, it is eternally true. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger... You used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished, but when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who also had leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Therefore, the saying went out among the brethren that that disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die but only if I want him to remain until I come. What is that to you? This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Be seated. So we've made it to the end of John's Gospel. Uh, The focus here at the end, and it's, I'll just let you know, it was two and a half years. So, relatively swift pace. Luke took longer. But it is longer. So... Two and a half years, and here we are at the end of this glorious, I mean glorious gospel. Um, the focus here at the end continues to be on the Apostle Peter and his restoration. Right here at the end, this, this sort of epilogue to the whole book is focused on the Apostle Peter. Last week, we contemplated those Those, I was going to say awful, but I'll say difficult diagnostic questions that Jesus gave to Peter. Peter, do you love me? And one of the points I made, you may remember, is that Peter and the other apostles would need to halt the comparisons that they were apt to make between themselves, right? Peter had said that he would never fall away. And the apostles in the upper room, what did they argue about? In the upper room, days before his crucifixion, they're arguing about which one of them is the greatest. And now as Jesus questions Peter, even asking him if he loved him more than the others loved him, um, Jesus' purposes to get both Peter and the 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 other apostles who are gathered there to drop the comparisons and stop jockeying for position. The rivalry that always exists among us. The pecking order, right? We're always sizing people up. We're always putting people in in different groups. We're always trying to assert ourselves. We're trying to win and be first. Right? Well that that was that's the common rivalry that exists among men, and it existed among these men who spent three and a half years following God around on earth. Peter needed to realize that the sin of his denial and the fact that in that he needed to realize that he was. Not any better than any other man. Which he was prone to think. He had arguments around that table about him being the greatest. He said he would never fall away even if all the others did. Right? The other apostles needed to realize that this public questioning of Peter was meant to restore Peter to his position. So they were not to look down upon him. How hard would it have been to have this sort of, you know, Peter, the, one of the chief apostles, you know, who was with Jesus in the transfiguration, to be the one who denied him. And then the other apostles would no doubt have some distaste for that if they weren't thinking about their own sins. Jesus is at work putting things right with the apostles just before he takes off. Just before he ascends to the Father. And those, those apostles go out to the ends of the earth with the message of his resurrection from the dead. And if they hadn't, we wouldn't know about it. The work with Peter is not yet done. After Jesus probing, you know, questions about love, Jesus makes this statement to Peter. Um, It really is extraordinary what Jesus reveals here and what Peter learns. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. And so what is the meaning of all of this? Well, it's, it's an obscure statement until we get to the next verse, which explains it all, right? Um, the meaning of that last phrase, verse 19. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. Now, there are a few things that we have to pull pull out of that and think about. So, when Jesus says that you used to, says to Peter, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished, he's describing the freedom that Peter had earlier in his life. He's just describing that he could decide what he was going to wear, decide where he was going to go, he had relative freedom of movement. He could do what he wanted. He could determine these, these little things. He could go, you know, anywhere. But later on, sometime in the future, that would no longer be the case. He would lose that freedom and someone would force him to stretch out his hands, Right? determine his clothing or lack thereof and force him to go where he didn't want to go. All of which is undoubtedly reference to the loss of freedom and the life that accompanies the death of a martyr. And the stretching out of the hands is clearly a description of the kind of death. This is going to be death by crucifixion. He's going to be He's going to be killed just as Jesus was killed, the kind of death he would experience. Jesus is telling Peter how he is going to die, that he will lose his freedom and be crucified. Now Imagine learning about your death before you die. It's hard information to handle. Undoubtedly very hard information to handle, especially if it ended there. He could have thought, well, this is going to happen Tomorrow. But notice what it says in the final phrase of that verse. And if there was any doubt in Peter about whether he would remain, you know, I, I think, I think, in some sense, Peter may have been relieved. Man, okay, I'm gonna go and die. Because he had betrayed the Lord. He did not want to do it again. Right? He didn't want to do that again. He had that on his. You know, yes, Jesus is working him through that, and he said, Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. And you know that Peter's conscience is easing through that ministry of Christ to him. But but the next phrase makes it clear, and that that any doubt he's having about his faithfulness would be completely removed. What a gift. What a gift. Right. Notice that the passage says that Jesus was signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. The death of Peter would glorify God, and so Peter would know that whatever troubles he had recently passed through, those things would not plague him upon his death. Right. His death would glorify God. Jerome. The 4th century theologian and historian uh, in the church wrote uh, this about Peter's death. He said he was crucified, his head being down, his feet being up. Himself so requiring because he said he was unworthy to be crucified after the same form and manner as the Lord was. He's like, I'm not going to be crucified like him. I don't deserve even that honor. Put me upside down. Now, you can, I, I don't know whether an upside-down crucifixion is better or worse. It sounds worse, but who knows? I mean, I don't know. But we don't know whether that's true. I mean, Jerome wrote it down. That's fourth century. We don't know. It's possible that that happened. It sounds like something Peter would do, right? Peter, who is quick to answer, quick to make decisions, quick to throw his opinion out there. You know, when they say he's going to crucify him, he's like, nah, do it upside down. I, I mean, that's, it sounds like Peter. But We don't know. But nonetheless, his death would glorify God. I was telling the men at Triple B last night that I, I used to want a fast car, but now I just want to die well. I just want, if the, if the, you know, if I don't go down in a plane, which is likely to happen, um, if that doesn't happen and the Lord gives me a slow death, um, I want to be able to give my children an example of faith in the midst of the final moments of life. I can't think of anything I want more than that. And what a gift. Do you pray about such things? Do you ask that your death might glorify God? Your death might glorify God. Now, we can romanticize it and all those deathbed confessions. You know, death is ugly and it's terrible and often it's painful and, and it's just bodily functions and it's horrible. You know, and so we I think some of those Fox's Book of Martyrs are sort of romanticized, you know, on his deathbed. He had clarity of mind and was, was preaching full paragraphs. And I think, well, maybe, maybe. They may be apocryphal. But certainly in some cases that is the case. And if just, if just I can be hearing the Psalms and having faith, I'll be happy. I'll be happy. Do you see the importance of that? Would, you, would your children even recognize what it means to die well? To die in the faith. To die with a happy disposition rather than a dreadful disposition. That's really what I want. I want to die with a happy disposition. I want to die as if the things that I've been preaching my whole life are true. I want to die with the content of my faith actually filling my mind and not fantasizing about all the sinful things I've allowed my mind to dwell on. And we ought to pray about such things and then live in such a way that when we are about to cross from this life to the next, that our minds are fully set upon our Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ, we can overcome that natural fear of death that we all have, that we all labor under, the weight of death that we all labor under and suffer under in this life. We can overcome that natural fear in Christ by faith. It's one of the sweetest gifts that Jesus gives to us in this life. We can also learn from this from Jesus' words to Peter. In a sense, before Peter knew Jesus, his life was a life of ease. And then he came to Christ, and it was no longer a life of ease. Right? And from knowing Christ to the end of his life, there was continuous difficulty in his life. Same for the other apostles, same for the prophets, same for the apostle Paul, right? Relative ease, relative worldly ambition going pretty well. Come to Christ, difficulty For the till the end, difficulty. Coming to Christ leads to more difficulty, not less in our lives. That's what it leads to. There's my anti-prosperity gospel gospel. They are exactly 180 degrees out of phase with what is true. Coming to Christ brings difficulty. Yes, difficulty with a clear conscience, which is wonderful, forgiven. Difficulty with knowledge, but nonetheless difficulty. Even the difficulty that comes, the conflict, the awkwardness, the rejection that increases in our lives, we have this consolation. We are able by the Spirit to consider all of that suffering joy. (laughs) Oh my. So though there may be more difficulty, there is also more capacity from the Holy Spirit to endure suffering and even to consider it joy. Calvin makes this point in his commentary, he says many have an easy and agreeable life before Christ calls them, but as soon as they have made profession of his name and have been received as his disciples, or at least sometime afterwards, they are led to distressing struggles to a troublesome life, to great dangers, and sometimes to death itself. This condition, though hard, must be patiently endured. Yet the Lord moderates the cross by which he is pleased to try his servants, so that he spares them a little while until their strength has come to maturity. For he knows well their weakness, and beyond the measure of it, he does not press them. Now, notice, so there's that. Notice then what Jesus says to Peter. After all of that, what does Jesus say to Peter? Follow me. Follow me. And you can see him saying, Peter, getting his eyes, right? Peter, follow me. Follow me, though you are going to die for me. Follow me, though you will lose everything in this life or everything that a worldling thinks is worth anything. You're going to lose it, but you'll gain it in the next. Follow me, though you will be thought of as a fool. Follow me, Jesus says to Peter, though you will die even a violent death. This is not the first time Peter had heard these words from Jesus. In fact, those words, follow me, are the first words Peter had heard from Jesus three years earlier. His whole life in this gospel is bookended by those two words, follow me. Mark, as he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew. Simon is Peter. Peter the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea for they were fishermen and Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. So follow me, said Christ to Peter when they first met and now after they had lived together for three years, even and especially after Peter had denied Christ and sinned against him, He says it again to him, follow me. And that call would be the call that was upon Peter's life when his hands were stretched upon his cross. Follow me. His life was to be one characterized by following the Lord Jesus Christ. The incarnate Son of God who gave his life as a ransom for many. Is that the call of your life? Is that the call of your life? Jesus says, follow me. He says that to all of us, right? But there are other things that are saying follow, right? There are other things in your life vying for Christ, to to shut Christ out, right? Follow me, says money. Follow me, says worldly ambition. Follow me, says vanity. Follow me, says Mohammed, says Buddha, says the New York Times. Do you follow Christ? you follow Christ? Silly, silly little question, right? It's like, what would Jesus do? Do you follow Christ? Is that the verb you would use to describe your relationship to Christ? I follow Him. There are other verbs we could probably put in there that might more closely define our relationship to Jesus. It's not so much following, but it's like I listen to him occasionally. I am half devoted to to Jesus. Are you a follower of Christ? Faith and belief and trust are at the core of the Christian life in Christ, right? Faith and belief and trust. It is our faith that justifies But there are many who claim to have some kind of faith, perhaps the faith that the demons have, as described in the book of James, but refuse to follow Christ. They say they have faith, but they won't follow Christ. They understand Jesus maybe to be their ticket to heaven, but they refuse to imitate him out of embarrassment. They refuse to imitate him out of Rejection, fear of rejection. They refuse to follow him. They refuse to live as he lived, to see him as an example of holiness in this life. They refuse to adhere to his commands, but they've got some sort of faith. But they don't follow. That's the dilemma of cheap grace, right? That's the cheap grace the American church has been selling for the past 200 years. We want Jesus, but we do not want His commands. We want justification, but we don't want sanctification. We want salvation, but we don't want holiness. We want the benefits that come from Christ, but we don't want to follow Him. So let's examine ourselves on that front. Are you a follower of Christ or are we just, you know, posers who like the thought of going to heaven when we die? I mean, who, who doesn't want to do that? <laughs> but that's all people think Christianity is. but it's about following Christ. It's our delight to obey King Jesus. Delight. That's the delight of Christians. Do you only follow Christ when it is easy and nothing is at stake? Is that when you feel like you're a follower of Christ, when there's, there's like no one's looking? But if someone's looking, you're like, man, this is embarrassing, and I'm I'm not going to be beholden even to the Son of God. I've got my reputation to uphold. When there may be any embarrassment, do you deny Christ just as Peter did? So are you a follower of Christ? Do you follow him? Do you do you go as he went? Do you go where he went? Do you say what he says? Do you, do you follow Christ? Then, now Peter, Peter, Peter gets distracted again. Can't we just have this glorious ending to the gospel of John that's not just like, that's like heaven? Can't we, can't we just get beyond Peter? He gets distracted again. He glances over his shoulder at this moment. He's like, so, you know, what about that guy? You know, he glances over his shoulder, and now that he has heard about his death, he wonders what's going to happen to John. I mean, Jesus told me how I'm dying. I wonder what's going to happen to John. The disciple whom Jesus loves. I mean, that's not why John put that in the gospel. John is actually being modest. He doesn't want to use his own name. But I imagine that is exactly how Peter felt about John. They had just argued about who's the greatest. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had also leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who's the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? (laughs) What about this man? Jesus had told Peter about what was coming for him and that his death would glorify God. Then Jesus had exhorted Peter to follow him. And instead of there being a contemplative resolve from Peter, what is he doing? He's like wondering about what is going to happen to some of the other guys. Instead of focusing on his duty, he's focused on what's going on with others. There's a lesson for us in that too, right? That is a common condition for us, isn't it? We look around at others to see how they are acting and forget about what God has commanded us to, right? Christ addresses us, and our next question is, well, what about so-and-so? What does he have to do? How high does he have to jump? And you just told me to jump five feet. But he should have to jump six feet. Generally, we do this because we'd like to cut ourselves a bit of slack. God has called us to purity, but hey, no one is pure and -and so-and-so seems to be getting away with this and that. So I think I can relax my standards a bit when I compare myself to others. But our standard, rather, is God's holiness. Our standard is defined by the Word of God. It is not defined by our neighbor. That's foolish. We're called to be holy as our Heavenly Father is holy. That's the standard. You are not to compare yourself to any man. You're due to the miserable thing of comparing yourself to God Almighty. And it's miserable because you'll always be unholy when you compare yourself to the holy God. And that's good. Peter wants to know what is going to happen to John. Not content to contemplate the mystery revealed to him, Peter starts making comparison and Jesus immediately rebukes him, immediately heads him off. So Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if I want him to, this is like parent voice. This is like when your little kid has got his finger in the socket. If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. In other words, why are you concerning yourself with what I am going to do with that man? You follow me. What is important is that you leave off these foolish comparisons, these comparisons meant to establish who is greater than whom and is meant to establish what you expect you can get away with. The standards is this, follow me. from the statement, if I want him to remain until I come, there started a rumor that John would not die until Jesus returned. But the phrase is explained, and that is not the way that it was meant to be taken. Jesus used the phrase as a way of simply saying that whatever becomes of John, whatever happens to him, you know, just whatever happens. If he, if I decide, you know, Whatever is ordained for him, even if he were to live a long time or in, until Jesus returned. That should not be your concern, Peter. And this is where the gospel ends, except for those two sort of final statements of John saying, I testify, I've seen, I, it's true what I've said. Test me. Go to other eyewitnesses right? And then that final statement just about the glory of, I mean, if, if John were to write down everything that he had seen Jesus do, it would have been volume after volume after volume, right? And, and I think it's using hyperbolic language here. Um, but, but the point is, we have what we need. What was written down is all that we need, Right? There's so much more, but this is sufficient to convince any man that Jesus lived, died, rose again, was God, and is your only hope of salvation. Now, we've come a long way in the Gospel of John, haven't we? But it is interesting that we have gone, in a sense, from the divine to the profane. We've gone from the opening chapter where the curtains are opened and we gaze on eternity. I mean, John 1.1, 1, 1, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. I mean, that's the opening of John, just these, the, I mean, you're seeing eternity. Only now to have the eternal word getting into the mud with the short-sighted sinful men who just can't seem to focus on anything but themselves. We've gone from the highest heaven to the mud of the pig pen in the Gospel of John. That's how it's gone. It's gone And that, dear brothers, is the glory of the gospel. That in itself is the glory of the gospel. The Son of God got into the mud. The Son of God got into the mud with his creatures. The Son of God died for his enemies. The eternal logos, the very origin of wisdom, argued with mere men. The sinless one became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So this movement from glory to the mundane, from visions into eternity and the trinity and the, the sort of Trinitarian complacency to the incarnate Son of God wrestling with pigs in the mud is the very glory of Christianity. Christianity. God has condescended. God has condescended. And we have seen that throughout this gospel and in the very structure of this gospel. Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Taking on the form of a slave, being made in the likeness of man, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it's like, it's like God comes down from heaven, gets in the pig pen, and then the pigs kill him. It's worse than just getting in the mud. He drowns in the mud. But that's the gospel, isn't it? Jesus Christ has entered into your life and it is filled with dirt and mud and hostility and sin and every wickedness and he died for you that you might be glorious and redeemed and purified, washed. That's the glory of the gospel. Here's the epilogue from Ryle's commentary on the gospel I wanted to share with you because I think he summarizes the whole very well. He says, Reader, I now have set before you your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that very Son of God who is begotten by the Father by an eternal and ineffable generation, consubstantial and co-equal with the Father in all things. But in these last times, according to prophetical oracles, was incarnate for us, "'Suffered, died, rose again from the dead, "'and was made King and Lord of all things. "'This is He who is appointed and given us by God the Father "'as the fullness of all grace and truth, "'as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, "'as the ladder and door of heaven, "'as the serpent lifted up to render the poison of sin harmless, "'as the water which refreshes the thirsty.'" as the bread of life and as the light of the world, as the redeemer of God's children, as the shepherd and door of the sheep, as the resurrection and the life, as the corn of which, of, what, of which springs up much fruit, as the conqueror of the prince of this world, as the truth, the way, the truth, and the life, as the true vine, and finally as the redemption, salvation, satisfaction, and righteousness of all the faithful in the world throughout all ages, Let us therefore pray, God the Father, that being taught his gospel, we may know him that is true and believe in him in whom alone is salvation, and that believing we may feel God living in us in this world and in the world to come may enjoy his eternal and most blessed fellowship. Amen and amen. The incarnate Son of God got in the mud for you. Do you believe? Are you his follower? Then you will know eternal peace. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for redemption. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you... Father, for reconciliation. Thank you, Father, for Jesus' perfect humility. Thank you, Father, for his kindness to us and, me, and the fact that he is mindful that we are just dust. Thank you for heaven. Thank you for a redeemed earth upon which we will eternally worship you. And those here today who are wavering, who don't know whether Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, I pray that your Holy Spirit would overpower their weak doubt. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.